0: It's New York It's New York
1: I guess everything my daddy told me was right When you're in the Big Apple then you better learn to take a bite
0: Hello and welcome to episode 1943 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: Doing well. Another day, another big contract for Carlos. Yeah. Talked about Carlos Correa last time. Today we have Carlos Rodon to talk about. Six years, $162 million for the New York Yankees. How about that?
0: A lot of lot of millions of dollars, you know yeah yeah
1: by the standards of this off season it seems almost pedestrian it's, <laughs> if it's if it's under two or three hundred million and yeah. if it's under eight years, it seems like nothing at this point point. Yeah. uh compared to where Carlos Rodan was a couple of years ago it's yeah. uh, quite a windfall which Good we can him, talk about I guess yeah definitely, yeah. so this is I guess the last elite Pitcher on the market, you could yeah. say. I I sort of disparaged Dansby Swanson and Carlos Rodon last time. I talking know about how when Carlos Correa came off the board, that was kind of like the last real elite, like difference maker, gets me super excited kind yeah. of free agent. But Carlos Rodon, you know, he has a case to be in that group, certainly. Yeah. And people have uh, called him an ace. The, the Ben Clemens Fangraphs post called him an ace in the headline, right? Referred to the fact that the Yankees now have two aces. Two. Yeah. Not and- just one, but two. Ace definitions? Uh, that's one of my least favorite arguments over who is an ace and what is yeah. an ace. <laughs> I don't know that I would put him there, I guess, but everyone has a different definition and it's mostly meaningless. But really, like the only reason I was sort of slighting Carl Sardan was not because of his recent performance, but because of his long-term track record, which may or may not be relevant at this point. But... Over the past two seasons, if we go by Fangraph's war, and why wouldn't we, he trailed only Corbin Burns and Zach Wheeler in Fangraph's pitching war from 2021 to 2022. Now, he was 42nd in innings pitched Mm -hmm. over that span because, uh, of course, he missed some time, particularly in 2021 down the stretch. But he was just so good on an inning per inning basis that he was still one of the most valuable pitchers in baseball and projects to be again, at least in the short term. So there's maybe a bit more uncertainty about him than your typical ace level effectiveness pitcher, but probably not that much more because every pitcher is risky and could potentially break.
0: You know, at any At any moment, like they could be walking down the road and they could be like, oh, no, I have broken, (laughs) you know, Yep. (laughs) they all sound like cartoon characters.
1: Yeah, it could happen.
0: Yeah, it could happen. Uh, I guess that could happen to all of us, you know, ace or not. But uh, yeah, I think it's funny how we think about injury risk when it comes to pitchers, because on the one hand, they could all break at any moment. And on the other hand, like. They, the ones who have broken previously, we we look at slightly more askance, and I think that's appropriate. And then on our third, coming out of our head hand. There's like <laughs> you get to the other end of the like all the way to one end of the spectrum so you can loop around where it's like oh this guy like very recently had Tommy John so I'm weirdly less worried about Yeah, race. Right. You Fresh know Ucl. Than yeah. cuz it's like it's brand new, you know, and it doesn't mean he can't injure it again cuz guys do that, but you kind of swim in weird waters when you're when you're signing a really good starting pitcher, but when you think about the ways that this Yankees team had to improve itself or sustain its level of play going into the offseason, like the obvious thing that they needed to do was re-sign Aaron Judge, and they did that. And then Mm -hmm. you're thinking about, like, what are the ways that they can kind of raise their ceiling relative to the rest of their division? And one of those ways would have been, say, bringing in, like, Carlos Correa, the other Carlos, Mm -hmm. and shoring up shortstop, which, you know, I know that they are very excited about their young prospects at that position, but is... You know, uh, still a spot that could use a, an upgrade uh, on their roster as it's currently constituted. But then it's like, um, you know, the other thing that you can do is just sign the best free agent pitcher who isn't <laughs> Jacob Degrom
1: available.
0: Mm-hmm. Am I underrating Justin Verlander? I might be, but I still think I would prefer Carlos Jordan. I think I'm comfortable with the assertion <laughs> that I just made. Let for me think for about one that. Year? Mm, no, maybe not. But for like this deal. You know, yeah, over the next six years, that's cheating. (laughs) It's cheating what I just did. Yeah. Um, Okay. One of the best pitchers (laughs) on the free agent market, there. That's appropriately caveated to, you know, be very good, as you said, on a per inning basis. You hope that he's able to sustain the improved health and availability. And now, all of a sudden, you know, a rotation where you were like, wow, we're really, you know, banking a lot on like Frankie Montas. Now you can bank on him less. Like Frankie Montas has a five. That's. That's fine. That makes mm-hmm. good sense. And then, you know, you go Cole and Rodon and Severino and Cortez, and you're like, wow, that's a that's a real good rotation that they have right there. So I feel um I feel like they did they did a good thing. And now when you look at our payroll breakdown, like look, it's perfect, Ben, as it's currently <laughs> constituted. I want to make an argument for this array being what I want to see from baseball. Are you ready mm. for me to make yeah. an argument? It just makes good sense. That the Mets and the Yankees would lead the, <laughs> yes. p- the payroll rankings. Like that is that is the teams in the biggest media market in the country with all kinds of resources doing what they ought to. And then it speaks to the health of, you know, the game more generally, that the third team is the Padres, much right. smaller market, but one dedicated to winning and really excited. And then and then that you would have the Phillies who had a big payroll in 2022 but were you know disappointed by their world series last saying no no we're gonna get better too we're doing the thing and then you have toronto which had you know the ability to spend maybe hasn't spent quite to the extent that their fan base would like but is like you know finally getting to know the luxury tax threshold in a way that Mm -hmm. they haven't before and then you have the angels who i don't know (laughs) you
1: have the angels (laughs) i don't know man
0: like at some point, it'll work, right? Like <laughs> it's a
1: good reminder that uh, spending is not necessarily guaranteed that you will win. So. yeah,
0: sometimes there's, you know. And so, I, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased, mm-hmm. Ben, because you want you want teams to deploy all of the resources that they have available to them to try to win, particularly when they're in divisions that are as competitive as both of the East and we're we're seeing the Yankees and the Mets sort of answer that call and and many of their division mates doing the same and then you know Boston's trying or something I don't know what Boston's doing but there you go I'm I'm, I'm pleased it doesn't feel great to me Ben can I say a thing that doesn't feel great to me are you ready sure feels bad that the Rockies and the Cubs have a higher payroll than the Mariners mm. Mm. I don't know hmm. how I you know like <laughs> yeah. I I don't I don't know about that one that seems Anyway, we'll kind of keep an eye on that. But yeah, good to be Carlos Rodon and good to be the New York Yankees, I think.
1: Yeah, it does feel appropriate that the two New York big market myths yeah. are on top there. Usually in the past, maybe they've been in a different order. It is yes. Mets first, Yankees second yes. now. I guess the only downside of this is that people will look at this and think, oh, it's unfair and it's a rigged game and uh, you can't compete and we need a salary cap, et cetera, et cetera, right? If it's like so predictable that the New York teams are on top. And obviously, like they are more able to spend than other teams are. So that's the only downside, I guess, is that it might lead to the impression that baseball does not have a good competitive balance because the two New York teams are just outspending everyone. Whereas, even though that's true, baseball has had pretty good competitive balance, but it, it just it feels right for them to be throwing their weight around, and you see the same thing on the Fangrass starting pitcher depth charts, mm-hmm. where it's the two New York teams on top, although in a different order, because uh, the Yankees now with Carlos Rodan equipped with the Carlos are in first over the Mets, and yeah, I mean they've got great. Top of the rotation talent there with Colin Rodon. They've got pretty good depth with guys like Domingo Herman and Clark Schmidt and Davey Garcia, and you can go down the list. So a little less aged than the Mets' rotation, I guess you could say. And I guess Rodon, like just the the two pitch. Pitcher repertoire, which is a, a fairly accurate label for him. He throws his fastball most of the time and his slider a great deal of the time. And then occasionally he will dabble in other pitch types, but he is a pretty much a two pitch pitcher. And it obviously hasn't held him back. There's something about that that feels like it shouldn't work quite as well as it has worked. Yeah. You just you have to have great stuff. Like, obviously, if you're getting by as a starting pitcher with primarily two pitches, then they need to be really, really. Good pitches, yep. as they are for Rodon, as they are for Kevin Gossman, let's say. So maybe, like, if something were to slip, like if he were to lose velocity, perhaps he would be more vulnerable, let's say, than a, a pitcher who has a larger repertoire and could compensate by just mixing pitches more. So that's something that that makes me slightly nervous about sure. him. Like he's not old what is he 30 so he'll be in his that uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> was a uh, whack
0: uh, uh, out of clear blue nowhere one yeah night.
1: He'll be basically as old as we are by the yep. time this deal is done. <laughs> He's not old. You know,
0: it's it's fine because that's like a that's like a number I can I can deal with, you know. Yes, I can Yes, As handle. old as we
1: are currently, yeah. we will be older then. Yeah, <laughs> unless uh, something
0: really weird happens.
1: Yes. But that would concern me slightly. Sure. Like, I, I don't know if that's a, totally backed up by the research. I don't know if there has been research about this. Certainly like pitchers who have more pitches, they are more resistant to, say, the -the times-through-the-order effect. I don't know that they're necessarily more resistant to age-related decline, but I I wouldn't be surprised or velocity-related decline. I think one sign of that maybe, if I recall correctly, some of the studies that Mike Fast and Jeff Zimmerman have done about whether Starters or relievers are more sensitive to velocity loss, and they found that it's more costly, typically, for a reliever to lose some amount of velocity than for a starter to probably because relievers just tend to be dependent more on on one or two pitches. So if something were to slip, if he were to have some sort of injury and come back not completely at full strength or just the normal wear and tear, then maybe he could reinvent himself. Who knows? But as his uh, pitch mix stands today, I would say that there, there might be a quicker drop off. And then there is the injury risk, which, of course, you know, he's had all kinds shoulder issues in the past, and he's coming off his best season, like his really his first season where he was both very good and durable by the standards yeah. of today. Yeah. And, yeah, and so that makes me a little bit nervous when someone sure. in his walk year, and I'm not saying it because it was his walk year, but it just so happened that it was his walk year, does something that he's never really been able to do before and, and puts everything together, all of the promise that he had. And then that's when he hits the market. Perfect timing for him. So yeah. good job, Carlos Redon. Yeah. But also you're betting now, you know, you're signing someone for six years and saying, hey, do that thing that you just did for only one year for the first time ever. So, you know, it's kind of concerning. But look, he's uh, been really effective and he's got great stuff. And uh, I see what the Yankees like not him. And not, <laughs> not in a Joe Kelly kind yeah, of Yeah, not
0: in a Joe Kelly
1: yeah, you know he's got great stuff, and also has been very effective yeah. with that stuff. But, but really, his trajectory over the last couple years yeah. is just wild because yeah. he was non-tendered after the 2020 season, much like Kyle Schwarber, I yeah. guess, who has also really <laughs> resurrected yeah, his career since then. Yeah, and. Unlike Schwarber, who I think signed in January of 2021, it took until February for Rodan to sign back yeah. with the White Sox again. And I, I think it was like the I took that personally last dance meme with him because <laughs> I think he said that. It was kind of a wake-up call for him that he was non-tendered. He was not expecting that. And he maybe rededicated himself in certain ways in response to that. And whether that was why or not, I don't know. But since then, he's been on a pruning basis and even not on a pruning basis, one of the very best pitchers in baseball. But it took some time for the White Sox to trust him. I mean, they never really did, right? Because uh, they just let him go. They just
0: let him go, Ben. It was weird.
1: It was was weird it was at the time people questioned it yeah. that they did not offer him a qualifying offer yeah. but that seemed to speak to a lack of confidence in him, which seemed semi-justified only because his shoulder issues had cropped up again and and he had lost some velocity or had just been fatigued down the stretch in 2021 and had not been as effective or as available. And that made some sense, I guess, given that he was pitching more innings than he had previously, but it wasn't so many innings. So whether that was a case of... Maybe the White Sox had just seen too much of Carlos Redon, like the the old not as good and not as dependable Carlos Redon. And so that's what they were still seeing in him, whereas maybe a different organization could see him with fresh eyes. But for whatever reason the White Sox basically had a a vote of uh, no confidence yeah. in Carlos Rodan and let him leave even though as it turned out they really could have used him. They policy. really could have used him.
0: <laughs> and it, you know, I think you're right. Like I don't want to attribute all of that decision to being cheap, right? Like I don't want to attribute all of it to that, but also I think that that was part of the motivation too, mm-hmm. right? Because like I think that when you're assessing the decision to make a qualifying offer or not like the worst thing that happens is a guy who has recently been very good for you just re-ups on a deal that is still probably below market, and the best thing that happens is he doesn't, and then you get draft pick compensation. So I just like I think that the I don't know that the risk reward is always properly calibrated on those choices, and I don't right. think it was here
1: originally. Yeah. Typically, I think, though, that teams have the best sense of their own players, sure. and so that did make me wary when yeah. the White Sox made that decision yeah. as good it's as we It wasn't
0: all cheapness, to be clear, but I think yeah. there, was, there was definitely like a Soussaint. Of cheapness.
1: Yeah. And, and right. Even if they didn't really want him back, you'd think that they could have anticipated that someone would want him would. enough yeah. to pay him more than right. that. And but who knows? Uh, maybe he would have accepted it. Yeah. <laughs> that would have worked out great for the White Sox. Yeah. he had. But he got to uh, ultimately a, a deal with the Giants instead and richly rewarded them.
0: Yeah.
1: And. That, right, like the fact that the White Sox, who theoretically, like they had seen him, he'd been in the organization a long time, like they knew his health as well as any team, and that they weren't really willing to commit to him or were not all that optimistic about his prospects. That made me think, well, is there something I'm not seeing here? Is there something more concerning than one would think? And it seems, no, not really. Maybe they were just too conservative or cautious or or cheap or whatever it was. And so- now that he's had the additional season and stayed healthy and still been quite good, then now no one has doubts anymore, yeah. I guess. So it's it's great for him. It's uh, quite a come up yeah. from getting non-tendered and yeah. teams not being all that interested to being one of the top pitchers on the market and yep. getting $162 million. Not bad. Yeah,
0: not bad. And I when I, I think about how he pairs with like this organization in particular and how it and I I might be giving New York too much credit here. So I want to acknowledge that that is a possibility. I don't think that the Yankees have shown a particular talent, like a, a really in, incredible talent for keeping their pitchers healthy relative to the rest of the market. I don't think that they've been like old school Metsing it, but like they've had injury issues in that rotation. So it's not like, you know, him going to the Yankees makes me think, oh, well, he'll never be hurt again. Cause like, that's not what they have demonstrated like a particular skill in doing, but when I think about a guy who has some of the performance-based risk factors that you talked about, right? Like what might happen if one of his two very good pitches starts to slip, it feels like this is such a good pairing for him with respect to that stuff, right? Like if you're the Yankees and you're as good at pitching development as they are, you probably sit there and say, well, yeah, there's some risk of that, but we'll probably be able to help him figure out how to do it differently or better, Mm -hmm. right? And so – that might be giving them too much credit. and I don't want to like disparage Rodon's ability to like course correct himself, but it, it feels like a it feels like a good fit in terms of their ability to maximize his existing skill set, but then also help him to adapt that skill set if and when he needs to because of some of the potential pitfalls that you mentioned. So I like it a lot. I think it's yeah. good.
1: It really is a ridiculous slider. It's a, it's oh, a man. very good fastball. It's but so beautiful. <laughs> it's a great, really yeah. great slider. It's just yeah. very
0: it is an aesthetically pleasing yeah. pitch to my yeah. mind. You know, it's like, oh boy, look at that one.
1: Yep. So <laughs> I was just thinking when you were talking about how any pitcher or any player or any person for that yeah. matter could get hurt at any time which is a cheery thought I was uh, <laughs> thinking I was just reading a, a great obit and, and life story by Craig Wright in his newsletter pages from baseball's past which I subscribe to and always recommend baseballspass.com but he wrote about Kurt Simmons mm. the Phillies and Cardinals great who yeah. died this week at 92 or 93 actually don't want to short change a, a non ever he's a, a friend of uh, Effectively Wild favorite Bobby Shantz And and Chance mentioned when we talked to him that Kurt Simmons was not doing so well. So he passed away this week and and Craig wrote about his career and he had a really great career, kind of a Hall of Very Good type career. Could have been even better, which you could say about so many pitchers, but... His initial injury, so he, this is uh this sounds extremely painful so this is uh nineteen fifty three so he'd had a a really great start to his career and was just an incredibly promising young pitcher. I guess that was his age twenty four season at that point, and he'd been an all star that year. he was an all star the previous year he was just off to a really great start on June fourth. He was mowing his lawn. <laughs> Oh no. Yeah. Oh, no. And on a hilly section, his no. left foot slipped no. under the power no. mower.
0: Oh, I hate you. I hate <laughs> you for telling me about this. We're in a fight. Oh uh, yeah.
1: sorry, uh, oh. content warning. Belated too late content warning. I guess I did say it was gonna be oh. painful, but you
0: did, but I didn't appreciate the like <laughs> Well,
1: what are you gonna do? You're you're kind of trapped here. You're <laughs> you're on the podcast. So It's like
0: um you remember that really bad M night Shyamalan movie The Happening? Yeah Where like the plants <laughs> yeah. Decide to kill us Which like you know We kind of suck As yeah. far as plants are as concerned in, So In
1: suspense uh, When you said really bad In mean, Shyamalan movie Could have gone to so many ways After that Yeah but I was waiting to find out Which one
0: You know I think that Some of them When you revisit them They're like better Than you remember You know Yeah
1: so some of them Are good
0: Some of them are good You wish that Mel Gibson weren't involved But like some mm. of them Are good mm-hmm. So do you, But do you remember The happening With Zoe yeah. Deschanel crying over Tiramisu Doesn't <laughs> a, a person Like lay down In front of a a writing mower to die in that movie
1: That's <laughs> I what I just
0: thought of Ben Now you're thinking of it too It feels well, like retribution and you wouldn't This be was wrong. not
1: intentional Fortunately, Craig continues, he was wearing his heavy army boots Or the damage <gasps> might have been much worse <sighs> As it was <laughs> Prepare yourself oh. His toes were mangled <gasps> His big toe was badly cut to the bone And he had to have surgery To amputate the quote Entire outer joint of the toe So he only missed a month somehow and uh, continued to pitch decently after that. But he was not as good. Was it his plant foot? Well, excellent question. No, it was not. So so that helps. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, he probably would have had to miss some more time. Yeah. (laughs) but he was uh, not as good ever again after being mangled by the mower. And the following spring, he had a sore shoulder. And some people thought, well, this is probably caused by the foot and toe injury because maybe he altered his delivery without oh, even knowing it. Was, like it.
0: compensating and, in a way right. he didn't appreciate. Yeah. yeah. And
1: so he had shoulder inflammation for years then. And elbow surgery and shoulder <sighs> surgery were at least a sore shoulder. He himself said he thought that the, the shoulder injury And the foot injury were not so related and that people had made too much of that link. But whatever the reason, he had multiple ailments. And then he kind of reinvented himself as more of a, a soft tosser, pitch to contact type by the standards of the day. And he had a really nice, good second act with the Cardinals. Actually, like, when he was uh, the ages that Carlos Rodan will be during this contract, like, you know, 31 to his mid-30s, basically. So he he found a different way to do it, which is something that a lot of pitchers have done. Like, uh, Frank Tanana comes to mind, like, someone who just was a flamethrower, just an archetypical power pitcher as a young guy and then got hurt and had to change some things. So, not saying that that will happen to Carlos Rodon. First of all, I'm not saying he will mangle his foot with a mower. These are not risks that I encounter as an apartment dweller. The downside, I don't have a lawn. The upside, I can't mangle my own foot with a mower while mowing that lawn. So I can't
0: believe how many more times you've said it <laughs> from Sorry. the first time that you said it.
1: Uh, anyway, I uh, I enjoy it when a pitcher can reinvent himself and find a way to be effective with diminished stuff. Although sure. it'd be nice if uh, pitchers could just keep their their A stuff longer. That'd be great too. But Kurt Simmons, an inspiration to all, though also a cautionary tale when it comes to lawn care. <sighs>
0: It's just like a I have a very active imagination, and so you said it, and now I'm just gonna think about it with a visual attached mm-hmm. like and yeah. can you just imagine you take your taking your shoe off when you realize you've done that?
1: Oof. yeah,
0: oh, it need to be sedated,
1: yeah man but you don't you don't have a lawn either, I assume right there's a little some there's, kind a,
0: of... there's a little bit a little bit of lawn
1: uh, um okay. a
0: little bit of lawn, but mm, not. Well, be careful out there. There's no hills involved the No hills. With the that's, lawn.
1: that's crucial. Yeah. but Wear your army boots, I guess, <laughs> just oh, in case. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's another thing. He missed time for military service, which was another thing that detracted from his career totals. Yeah. Anyway, really good Oof. picture. Good life, uh, rest in peace, Kurt Simmons, last of the whiz Kids. Yeah. Anyway, that was a digression. I meant to say after Radon is signed now, okay, so Dansby Swanson, sort of the last man standing from people's top tens at least yeah. and maybe top 15s or so on yes. the free agent list. And he may sign sometime soon. For all I know, he may have signed by the time people are listening to this. Sure. But I think that this offseason has been – Really, to my liking, in terms of mm. its pace, in terms of oh, uh, yeah. how it has parceled out transactions, like this is kind of a Goldilocks off season for me. I think not to be confused with the the so called Goldilocks ball, but a Goldilocks off season, just in terms of like not too slow, like compared to previous quote-unquote normal off-seasons, like pre-pandemic, no lockout, et cetera, we were all bemoaning how slow things moved and how great free agents were still hanging around like when spring training was starting. And that has not happened, right? And we've seen, you know, there was a, a slow start But I think a a slow start is okay in November just because, you know, we're all still winding down from the excitement of the playoffs and we're still kind of basking in that and we haven't gone into withdrawal yet with baseball news and – You have some consciousness that it's a long off season and you don't want to just like, you know, burn all your material really early. Right. So you wait until the winter meetings and we got just a frantic, super exciting winter meetings week and aftermath of the winter meetings. So that was a ton of fun. And baseball got some headlines and got some attention at a time when it might not otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that was great. And now most of the big business has been conducted prior to the holidays, so we can all just kind of relax, right? Like, you, you don't have to worry that Jerry Depoto is going to sign, well, anyone, it seems like. I don't think we like. really <laughs> but, have to worry about sh- that generally, but yeah, yeah I take the broader point. <laughs> or even A.J. Preller, right? Yeah. I wouldn't put anything past him, but you don't have to fret quite as much uh, on Christmas Eve or whatever that there's going to be right. some huge signing coming because there are only so many signings left to occur. Right. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah. this
0: is what I've said to various members of the fan staff is like you know because we we assign pre-rights for like a lot of the top guys so that people know like hey this guy is like a drop everything guy and these guys are not a drop everything guys mm-hmm. and get a little work done on the drop everything guys so that when they sign you know you have less to drop more to drop i don't know anyway of the guys who are like i'm going to interrupt someone's evening level of signing it's really just Swanson who's left like no offense to Andrew Benintendi or Mm -hmm. anything but like if Andrew Benintendi signs between December 26th and January 2nd like He's a 2023 Meg problem, you know, like he yeah. he, can, he can wait and he's a good player and, you know, we'll write him up and everything. But like, that's not that's not a 2022 Meg problem during that week anyway. I'm not disrupting someone's holiday for Andrew Benintendi. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think it's good that that teams, you know, like the, the stockings are stuffed, like the presents for fans are under the tree. Right. And it gives you more time to look forward to what Next year's roster is going to look like and get excited about it and perhaps sell season tickets from the team's perspective. But you know who's going to be on the cover of the media guide and just it's good to, I think, get some of that settled early. And yet there's enough still left to happen. That it won't be just a total nothing in January and and February. I mean, and by the time you get to February, like pitchers and catchers are reporting, which is ultimately kind of a nothing burger. But at least like it's a it's a milestone. It's it's a signpost. It's like, okay, we're getting there. And. The closer you get to opening day, the easier it is to tolerate a lack of news. Doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to podcast, (laughs) but still, I think it's better to have the bulk of the news concentrated in the first half of the offseason before the end of the year than after. And so I feel like this is kind of perfect. Like we had a little time to wind down after the season. Then there was frantic activity that was super exciting. Then we have more time to wind down and enjoy the holidays. And then there's still some business to conduct when we all reconvene in 2023. And then before you know it, it's uh, spring training. So this has been good. And I don't know if this will always be the new normal, but it's, it's nice that... Having gotten back to some sort of normality post CPA and lockout and pandemic et cetera, that we could go back not to the normal that immediately preceded the pandemic, which right. was too slow, and everyone too was slow. wondering is free agency broken and this is terrible, but to uh, the normal before that, this is kind of recalibrating, resetting. I'm pleased with this pace.
0: Yeah, I think that this is pretty. This is pretty good now. You know, I've just said, like, I'm not going to disrupt anyone's holiday. And then Preller's going to trade for, like, yes. Garrett Cole <laughs> somehow or
1: some nonsense. <laughs> right, yeah. And then I'm going to be like... Now have that we have like, like, redan, Garrett Cole is expendable. Yeah, totally so have... expendable.
0: Get rid of that guy. Who needs <laughs> yeah. him? He's a yeah. bum. You know, <laughs> and so then I'm going to have to be like, hey, sorry, everybody, but who wants to write up this crazy transaction? Yeah. But... You know, in terms of the stuff that is predictable, like the business we know is in all likelihood, and particularly as you've noted, given the pace of this off season and sort of the urgency the teams seem to have around signing guys, like the business we can kind of predict being completed before pitchers and catchers report. Like here mm-hmm. we are, isn't that yep. nice?
1: Yep. So if you're a team that was trying to get better this off season, I, I hope that you've gotten yeah. what you wanted to get done because uh, there's not only a lot less So much yeah yeah <laughs> not a ton of different speakers out there. no, all right, let's uh answer some emails okay all okay. right here's uh here's one from Josh. This is in the spirit of the season. I'm supposed to get snow tomorrow, Ooh. and that had me thinking which players would you want on your team in a snowball fight? Oh, so I guess the the big question is what is your pitcher position player breakdown? Is it all pitchers? Because I could see a case for some position players. Uh, first question, I'm not clear on how you win a snowball fight. Because every snowball <laughs> fight I have ever been in, there hasn't really been like a clear victory Winner, condition. Yeah. Like, it's it, there's no way to win. Generally, it's just a free-for-all until get everyone tired. gets tired and cold, cold. and then yeah. it just... Peter's out, right? Yeah. Like there may be more organized ways to have snowball fights. Like maybe you have a, a certain number of snowballs pre prepared or, or or you could play it like paintball style, where like once you get hit by a snowball, you're, you're out. out of the game, you know, oh. or dodgeball style, but like with the telltale snow mark that is on you. Although I guess uh, everyone has snow on them probably in yeah. a snowball fight just from traipsing around in the snow and being in yeah. the snow. <laughs> so that might that might make it tough to tell. But yeah There are probably, like, uh, we won this snowball fight or, like, okay, we have achieved our objective. But generally, I guess it's just maybe you win by by pummeling the opponents until, like, they just are in submission because they're tired of getting hit by snowballs, I I guess. Like like Buddy the Elf. Yeah, I guess so. So really, all you want is uh, players who just throw hard and and quickly I guess because
0: Well, I think that there's an argument for more than just pitchers. Like I think that there's probably a good argument to sprinkle in like some shortstops and third baseman. You know, yeah. you think about potentially second baseman depending. Like you think about guys who are good at throwing on the run, throwing from different like platforms basically and they they seem like they would be useful in a snowball fight if what you're trying to inflict is like maximum i don't want to say damage because like this should be fun right it's (laughs) it's literally a snowball fight but like who can land a snowball from a variety of of different throwing angles most often but with like let's assume you know snow that is like wet enough to hang together but not so wet that it's painful when it hits you mm-hmm. right this is like nice idyllic snow that where you can just have a good time and then like you said you're you're cold and wet at the end and everybody goes inside and drinks something warm like that kind of like nice competitive but not like nasty kind of mm-hmm. so and so then I think there's an argument to be had for infielders of various stripes because you know we see them make throws like that all all the time yeah. you probably don't need a first baseman cuz you're not trying to catch them you know you're no. not trying to like dig it no. out that's yeah, not that's what you're a, trying to do maybe catchers. Point. Because your
1: target is not stationary in right. a snowball fight and you don't get to take a full wind up necessarily. Right. Like you're dodging, you're diving, you're juking and jiving. Like you you want someone who can be accurate and throw on the move. And yeah, maybe maybe an infielder would be better prepared for that than a pitcher, even if they don't all have the arm strength. And also, I guess you want some agility and, and yeah. conditioning and athleticism because you also want to avoid getting hit by the snowball. Sure. Uh-huh. And so some pitchers are pretty athletic and uh, run a lot, and others do not necessarily. Right. So that's a, another point. And I guess a lot of the effectiveness of a team in a snowball fight comes down to the snowball preparation. Right. So you'd really want someone who would be good at, at packing the snow. Just like not so hard that it hurts, but also not so loosely that it just comes apart. Right. And I don't know that anyone in particular would be particularly well prepared for that, but you would just want to make sure prioritize someone who can just create snowballs that will carry and find their target, which could be anyone on a team. I guess maybe you'd want some sort of like a veteran mentor, backup catcher type, yeah. just like packing the, the snowballs on the side and handing them off to people. People who knows,
0: or like an umpire's, you know, umpires, mm, yes, yeah. to yeah. just pulling
1: them out of their, their snowball bag, yeah, yeah right, yeah. huh? Or I guess uh, maybe someone who, who rubs stuff on the ball, doctors, baseballs, yeah. perhaps. But again, we're not be. trying to, we're not trying no. to
0: like it. You don't really need like that much more zip than you just get from. From reasonable arm strength, right? Like, because yeah. we're again, we're not trying to hurt anyone, and people are are no doubt thinking, well, well, what about catchers, right? Because they yeah. they are used to throwing out base runners, and like that's mm-hmm. that seems valuable. But also, you're right that like having probably more mobility than yeah. the average catcher is important. So, like, you know, maybe you you have like Real Muto or Sean Murphy, but like you'd have to be, you'd have to clear a pretty high. Bar, I think, athletically to be, yeah, not to be a big league catcher. Although you have to clear a very high bar there too. But there's like a particular kind of athleticism that we're interested in here that that may be less common in the catching contingent. You know? Yes,
1: they yeah. can be a bit lumbering in some they, cases. They can be
0: a bit lumbering.
1: <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, I guess you could go for someone like O'Neill Cruz, let's say. Although. Oh, yeah. He presents a big target, which uh, I guess you could say about some some catchers too. They tend True. to be maybe a bit wider. You know, you want to yeah. keep a, Got those keep a good profile. Yeah, yeah, have a, a narrow silhouette, which I guess O'Neill Cruz gives you. Like he's yeah. he's big.
0: He's spindly,
1: top to bottom, not as much left to right. So, <laughs> between that and his arm strength, that'd be good. You yeah. know, probably like a, a Javi Baez would be yeah. good in one of these, just with the arm strength and the agility and all of that. So. Yeah, I I think actually, uh, initially I was thinking you'd just stack your roster with pitchers, but more and more I'm thinking probably not because yeah. it, it tends to be fairly close quarters to a snowball right. fight too. So you don't necessarily need someone who can make like a UNS Cespedes right. intro type throw from an outfield corner either. It's not really a long distance thing typically, so –
0: Oh man, Ben, imagine Mason win a, yeah, in a Mason, snowball oh, see, fight.
1: He'd be perfect, right? Yeah. Because yeah, he yeah. gives you the, the pitcher arm strength and the infielder agility.
0: Yeah, really. Yeah. Zip it. I mean, hopefully, no one in your snowball fight is throwing the ball. 100.5 miles per hour because that seems kind of dangerous yeah. right yeah. but also i don't think that the aerodynamics of a snowball facilitate that maybe no. in the same way that a baseball does so no, I, I think not. it could be okay but we got to keep an eye on it
1: everyone practice safe snowball fighting
0: yeah this you don't yeah. want to you don't want to lose an eye because there's a rock in there by accident or something that'd be bad
1: mm-hmm. yeah Now that I think about it, though, you probably want Otani on your team. I was thinking, would you want position players or would you want pitchers? Well, why not both in one guy? Whatever the question is, take Otani. Always an easy answer. All right. Here is a question from Dave. You recently discussed whether three distinct baseballs were used across the league last season. This got me thinking, what would baseball look like if MLB literally only used three individual baseballs for every game for an entire season? How long would the season take? Would MLB play three games at once, each using a single ball? This seems most efficient. Or would all three balls need to be used for a single game apiece in order to keep things moving along when the ball ends out of play? Second, would fans accept, as they do in many other ball sports, that when a ball lands out of play, it needs to be returned? Oh, yeah. And three, how would this change the look and feel of the game over the course of the season? The balls would deteriorate over the course of the season. Seams would rip, scuffs, and blemishes would eventually cover the entire surface of each ball. Does this increase strikeouts as pitchers start to get all kinds of wacky movement? At what point does the added movement become a nuisance? Yeah, this is uh, an interesting question. I think you wouldn't have enough... Days in the year to to complete the full 30-team, 162-game schedule. Well, and (laughs) you just wouldn't have a usable ball. right? No, at a certain point, it would just be completely in tatters. So so, hmm, I guess, right, you would either have very long individual games if you went with just one ball at a time and had to constantly pause and retrieve the ball. Or you would just I mean you just would not be able to doing it that way, you would just not get many games in. Yeah. <laughs> you just wouldn't be able to complete the schedule. And even if you had like if you had yeah, if you had three balls in one game, the that game might be a bit snappier, but then you'd be able to play even fewer games. Right. So that just wouldn't work. You'd have to shorten the regular season. Yeah. Also I think as far as the fans handing the balls back, that is how it used to work in the earlier days of baseball. But it's been cemented for so long that fans get to keep the balls as souvenirs that I think you'd have a hard time going back to taking balls back from fans in the stands. And I think what you'd have to do probably is put up more netting. You'd have to put up netting that would block everything, right? Like not just – protect the people immediately behind home plate in the lowest section, but maybe go from like the field to the upper deck and just block the entire stand so that every ball would just uh, hit the net and bounce back off. Right? Otherwise, you would constantly be losing the ball. You wouldn't be able to get people. You wouldn't be able to compel people to return the ball, and you wouldn't be able to find them, and they would hide it. So I think you'd have to do that. You'd have to net off the stand so that a ball could not go into the stands. And As for the effect on play and and offense, well, part of the uptick in the the so-called live ball era was not just that they made the ball more lively, but that they replaced the balls more often. And if you were to use the same ball, even if it's better constructed than it was back in the dead ball days, like it would quite quickly just become a complete mess and oh, yeah. a misshapen lump and just have seams going off every which way and, and have the cover hanging off and initially this would benefit pitchers because uh, hitters wouldn't be able to hit the ball as far and who knows what kind of movement you could get if you could scuff it and, and scuffs would happen on fouls etc but there would come a point i suppose where it might actually benefit hitters because well you just like you wouldn't be able to throw the thing accurately it just it wouldn't hang together it would become a snowball like consistency and at that point i don't know that you could throw a strike anymore yeah, yeah. It just, like it wouldn't reach the plate so right. you might not actually be able to hit it but also it would not be a strike right. and you might just walk everyone and the game would never end. Uh, so this is this is not good. This is not a good plan for any number of reasons.
0: Yeah, I, I am intrigued by how quickly the crowd would like devolve into peer pressuring people to throw stuff back, but mm-hmm. I just think this would be such a slog and then at some point just not baseball at all based, because of all the problems it would present that you just named. At, yeah. at a certain point, you're just like, Kind of playing hacky sack, like yeah. but with your arm.
1: Yep. The, the baseball itself would no longer right. be a baseball. It would no, be, not be functional. And at that point, it is no longer baseball. So, yeah, this would be disastrous. Much more disastrous than, than having potentially multiple models of ball would be just having one ball that you have to keep reusing. All right. Matthew, Patreon supporter, says, I drafted this message before you read and responded to the listener question in episode 1941, which starts off in a similar manner but takes a very different tack. About your Steve Cohen discussion in that episode... I am a lifelong Mets fan, having suffered through the miserliness and the Metsiness of the Wilpon years, and I am so thrilled that the team was able to re-sign Brandon Nimmo and replace DeGrom with Verlander, and, and, and. The team was so much fun last year, despite the ending, and I'm really excited for next year. It's pretty clear that Cohen's billions and his willingness to say F you to the other owners is changing the landscape for the team. And as you touched on, it may force other owners to adapt and spend more themselves, which would be a big win for everyone. However, I think it's important to register another emotion in this conversation, unease at the way that Cohen is using his money to buy his way into the good graces of society. Mm. We've talked about this before when he bought the team at intervals since, mostly in a joking manner about his doing of crime. But I think it's a vital part of understanding what he is doing in the sport, and I hope you all address it again in some depth. He's not the worst offender out there, of course. We're in the middle of the World Cup, hosted by Qatar, because they bribed a bunch of FIFA officials. The country then proceeded to allow thousands of migrant workers to die during the process of getting ready to host. Meanwhile, they also own one of the top European clubs, PSG, while rival states with their own ethical transgressions own several others, KSA, Newcastle United, UAE, Manchester City. And until recently, Russian oligarchs controlled several major teams across the continent. There are similar tales to tell in basketball, in golf, with the Olympics to a certain extent. You have a baseball podcast, of course, not a global sports podcast, but how would you fit Cohen and his spending into this global context? Are you worried about other people or literal countries in similar circumstances buying more baseball teams? Might Cohen be something of a force for good in the baseball ecosystem because his goals, laundering his reputation, primarily are so vastly different from his fellow owners turning a tiny profit by keeping costs down? Sorry if that was a little bit of a long rant or comment or discursive <laughs> or something, but I worry about these things. Primarily, yeah. I worry that as a fan of one of these teams, I might fall into the trap that Cohen is set of rooting for him personally because I root for a collection of people he employs. I worry even that I am inherently complicit by paying for tickets or merch or just rooting for the Mets and sending positive vibes about them into the universe. So... Is Steve Cohen sport washing here? Should we uh, feel bad about the Mets being the the trailblazer here when it comes to spending? Because this is all part of Steve Cohen's dastardly plan to restore his reputation.
0: I've been thinking about this since we got this email. I'm going to I'm gonna say a series of things. I don't know if I'm going to come to a conclusion at the end of it. Because like, on the one hand, I think that he is an extreme example of an existing phenomena, right? Which is that he is both spending more money and has a lot more money at his disposal than some number of the existing owners in baseball, other owners in baseball, I should say. And so he is an outlier in that respect, but he is, I think it is a a difference of degree rather than category. And so You know, I don't think we have to hand it to him (laughs) in terms of his like financial dealings as a hedge fund manager, and I think that he is – using his team, I imagine probably for his own enjoyment more than a sort of calculated strategy of reputation laundering, although I right. could be wrong about that. Yeah.
1: I don't know if he cares whether people like him or not. Like right. it, it does yeah. seem I mean he got on Twitter and he did seem to be soaking up that right. you like know public. <laughs> yeah.
0: There are definitely parts of his personality, at least as he has manifested them on social media, that seem to care a great deal about like how people perceive him. And it's not like we're wanting for examples of billionaires who, despite having enough money to theoretically insulate them from having to care about that stuff or or engaging with it, being you know big babies. So uh, it's not like that would be a new phenomena, particularly on Twitter. But my sense of it is that the sort of overriding motivation seems to be that like this is the new fun toy that he has in his possession, and that. He wants to enjoy owning it in a way that is perhaps a little bit different than like those sort of reputation laundering that we think of when we think of sports washing. It can be both to be clear, but
1: yeah. It's not like a live golf sort of situation, exactly. Right. I don't think. Right. Right.
0: And so, like, there's that piece of it, and then there's like what we do as consumers, with the understanding that, like, on the one hand, the the most direct lever that we sometimes are led to believe we can pull is like a monetary one, and and withholding monetary support, but also, I think that that impact tends to be. Relatively limited, at least when it's on an individual basis rather than organized. But I don't want to let people off the hook either, right? Like sometimes I think that acknowledging the reality of like they're not being ethical consumption under capitalism is a way to that people are like, so it doesn't matter what I do, and it's like, well, no, it still does matter, right? So there's that piece of it. I also want to acknowledge the difference that exists between like someone, even someone as wealthy and powerful as steve cohen relative to a state right with state power and and all of the authority and power that comes with that and sort of the direct control that it brings in terms of other people's lives so like those are those are different even though I don't want to downplay like the hugely outsized influence on the world around him that someone with Steve Cohen's financial resources can have. So I think that all of that is to say that it is like a big yucky soup that we tend to swim in when we are when we are fans of things in this era of our existence. So I think that it's fine for you to enjoy the Mets, particularly when like the manifestation of his money is like you know, paying really good athletes to be good at their jobs. So there's that piece of it. I do think that it is really important for us as like consumers of sports to not get overly enamored with these guys, right? Like when people were like, Uncle Steve, I'm like, please relax.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: No, <laughs> please relax. Like this guy, <laughs> and this guy has like done financial crimes. <laughs> done some crimes so like chill um, there's like good reporting on this that you should read so like I think you can enjoy the Mets and also not like feel the warm and fuzzies towards Steve Cohen and I think that we are able to hold those two two realities and ethical choices like in our hands simultaneously so all of that to say like enjoy the Mets Don't become a fan of billionaires. Like, it's such a bad idea. And uh, because they're going to disappoint you, if nothing else, like, even if the ethical part of that doesn't bug you, like, they're going to let you down because that's kind of what they do. And I think that it is an unfortunately necessary conversation for us to keep having because, like, it is clear that at least when it comes to state actors, that, like, they view They view sport, I think, appropriately as political, and they view it as like another arena in which they can try to assert and grow and maintain soft power. So, like, that's a good thing for us to be mindful of because, yeah, like, (laughs) FIFA seems really corrupt and like bad (laughs) stuff happened around this World Cup that, like, is very well documented. So, like, you don't have to hand it to them, right? But Mm -hmm. I think it's okay for you to enjoy the Mets still. Mm
1: hmm. And
0: if you decide you don't, I also, like, I think the flip side of that is that you don't have to keep being a fan of a thing if the behavior of the owners of that thing, you know, inspires like a little voice in the back of your head, right? There's nothing wrong with you saying, I'm out on this now. Like, I think this guy is icky, you know. I think that there's a lot of precedent just in American sports, where you don't have at least in the same way that you have in some of the examples in this email, like the same like state presence, state ownership presence, people saying like, this owner's a piece of crap and he treats people terribly, and I don't wanna root for him anymore, right? Like I imagine that there are fewer Washington Commanders fans now than there used to be because of what their owner has done. So it's okay for you to decide I'm out on this. I'm not going to I'm not going to give this person my emotional or financial investment anymore because I find what they do distasteful. That's that is a perfectly reasonable reaction to this kind of stuff also. So, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't know. I feel like sometimes in the service of fandom, fans of opposing teams like to like throw the ethical violations of the like opposing fans uh, owners, not that they own the fans, but the owners of the teams those fans root for back at them as like a gotcha, not because they care about the ethical issue, but because they want to do a gotcha, right? It's like Mm -hmm. they've gotten tired of saying count the rings. And so this is the next (laughs) argument in the litany. And like, that's a key too. don't do that (laughs) because like your owner (laughs) is probably not actually better in any meaningful way. And you're not doing that in service of trying to like improve the circumstances around whatever issue it is you're doing it to like gotcha count the rings and other fans so it's like you're not honoring those concerns either so it's just i don't know it's a it's a tricky it's a morass ben Mm
1: -hmm. i feel like
0: i was a little rambling but it's hard to nail down an exact thing there you know there's a lot it's a it's complicated
1: yeah, it is. Interestingly, Steve Cohen hasn't tweeted since November 9th mm. when he tweeted about the Edwin Diaz deal being done. Lots of other deals he could have tweeted about yeah. since then, but but he has not. I yeah. don't know what that means. Maybe he's uh, not an Elon fan. Who knows what's yeah, going on there? who knows? But <laughs> maybe,
0: you know. Yeah. Maybe he has just finally realized the thing that all of us realized, which is like if we had the money that these guys have, you would just never hear from us ever again.
1: (laughs) Maybe or or we'd do jokes.
0: You know, it's like Mm -hmm. we'd do some jokes. We'd be Mm -hmm. we'd be committed to the jokes. But like this does not go go be on an island. You know, go plant some trees, save save someone. What are we doing here?
1: Yeah. I do think that a part of why billionaires buy teams is is so they can be big shots, like not necessarily so that you can think they're good guys and moral, ethical people, but, you know, they can just be big shots in their town, in their city. People could be grateful to them if they spend their money to have their team win. And Steve Cohen, he's from Long Island. He's a Mets fan. Like, he does just want the Mets to win, I think. And that is uh, part of his motivation. It's not like he's purely just, I want people to forget about my financial crimes, so I will buy the Mets. Like, I don't know that, I don't know how much he is actually Bobby Axelrod from Billions, but Bobby Axelrod from Billions, like, you know, he didn't necessarily need to be loved by the public. Right. Just uh, He wanted to make money and get to do what he wanted to do, and so I don't know if uh, Steve Cohen, how highly he valued – making the Mets win versus this is a good investment versus I can get hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers now because before only people in the business world knew me and now all Mets fans will know me and those are my people. I grew up one of them and it would be cool to be venerated by them. What we're saying is you don't have to venerate necessarily. You can be pleased, I guess, that that you're... Billionaire is a bigger billionaire than the other billionaires and that he's actually spending some of his money, but it doesn't really have to go beyond that. But, you know, if you're going to say that you want your owner to be a wonderful person with uh, no problems in their record or anything, then you're going to have a hard time ultimately finding a team to support because uh, they all mostly are billionaires and a lot of them have done stuff that was somewhat unsavory. So. And uh, speaking of owners, we got a couple Bob Nutting questions here. People love uh, nutting and talking about nutting. So Seth says, let's say Bob Nutting named you GM of the Pirates. Congrats. You go to him and say that in order to build a better team, you'd like to have the team be more active in the free agent marketplace and increase spending. He counters by saying, I've listened to Effectively Wild and read other industry studies that say that there seems to be very limited relationship between the payroll of a team and their on-field success. Given that, why should we spend more? And uh, I guess this would be Bob trying to do a gotcha, trying to hoist us by a hard And I guess I would say that while some Low spending teams have had considerable success. The Pirates have not been one of them. Yeah. And so they should do something differently from what they've been doing. <laughs> so if this were a conversation with the raise owner, right. it would be a slightly different conversation because right. you could still make a case that they should spend more, but it wouldn't be based on lack of success necessarily. I mean, you could right. say that we would have had more success and we could have some postseason success, but you couldn't say, well, we haven't been competitive spending what we've been spending. But with Bob Nutting, I think you could say that. So uh, I guess one thing you could say is, well, you should." hire front office people like the Rays to implement a plan to win without spending. But you could also just say, well, we haven't spent and we haven't won. And so we should try to do something differently. And it certainly can't hurt to spend. And, uh, continuing to repeat this plan is not wise yeah. and therefore you will see a return on your investment because we will win more games and draw more fans and play more playoff games, etc. So I think while that might be true league-wide, it is not true for every organization and some organizations have uh, proven more capable of winning without spending so much than others. So yeah. if you're one of the latter then I think there's an easier case to be made for ramping up the payroll.
0: Well, and I think in addition to that, this isn't like perfectly true, right? There are certainly exceptions to this rule. But I think that in addition to the impact it has on the sort of odds that your roster sees the postseason or or is even just competitive over the course of the season, even if they don't end up playing in the playoffs – you know, generally when you spend money on good players, you have good players and they're fun to watch, right? Yeah. Ultimately you are, in theory, in an entertainment business. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so one of the benefits of spending money on good players, like don't maybe like do the Eric Hosmer contract, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like if you spend money on good players, even if your team doesn't have a corresponding like jump in the standings, you've given your fans more fun baseball to watch. And Mm -hmm. that's in theory, like one of the things we're here to do. So I think that's a compelling argument also.
1: Yeah. The flip side of buying a sports team to sports wash yourself is that you might, get the opposite of the intended right. effect, where right. you buy a sports franchise and you're vilified.
0: Right. Then you're Bob Nutting.
1: Yeah. Then you're bottom line Bob. And I guess he's much more known than he would have been without buying the Pirates, but not in a good way, right. not for good reasons. People who know him curse his name. Yeah. So unless you just think uh, all news is good news or all publicity is good publicity, then that's not good. Maybe right. you would rather be anonymous and not vilified to <laughs> So right. you do once you buy the team you then have to invest. It's not sufficient just to buy it right. and then have everyone bow down before you. You actually have to spend some money so that they will be glad that you bought the team and will not right. think you're a cheapskate. So yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah definitely cuz we, you know, it's funny like I I wonder I wonder if there's a way to like measure this with Q scores or whatever, but you know like i think generally the people who are most likely to know the names of the owners of a team at all are fans of that team and then like national writers and then the exceptions to that tend to be either the really successful or the really putrid franchises right like you're not a big like you're not a big football guy ben but you mm-hmm. know who bob craft is right like you yes. know who that guy is so there's that piece of it where you can be, I guess, a more anonymous owner—someone who isn't on the tip of the tongue of uh, of a person who isn't invested in the specific fortunes of that franchise—but I think you have to clear a certain winning bar before you can get into that like safe band of anonymity, because yeah.
1: otherwise
0: you're pump nutting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that seems that seems bad. And the other Nutting-related question, (laughs) because there were two, this one uh, is also fit for the season. This is from JJ, Patreon supporter, who says, It's December 24th, and Bob Nutting, after relenting in withholding the Scouts' Christmas bonuses, goes to bed. During the course of the evening, Bob is visited by three spirits, the ghost of Christmas past, Andrew McCutcheon, the ghost of Christmas present, O'Neal Cruz, and the ghost of Christmas future, the 2023 first overall draft pick personified. Bob awakes a changed man, no longer interested in nutting his ball club, and instead dedicates himself to running the Pirates as charitably as possible. How would this manifest itself? Do the Bucks acquiesce in all arbitration negotiations? Do all pre-arb players receive a base salary of $1 million? Do all scouts get personal services contracts when they retire? Interested to hear your thoughts. So I don't know in this scenario whether he becomes the biggest spender, whether he's going dollar to dollar with Steve Cohen, or whether he is just lavishing dollars on people who otherwise would not get them, like people in the organization who are sort of behind the scenes or players who are not in the phase of their careers where they're making a ton of money. So I guess this is just like... Being generous, whatever would qualify as generosity for an MLB owner.
0: Yeah, I think that, like, there's the free agent signing piece. There's, like, um, and I don't want to, like, oversimplify the case of Cruz here, but, like, there's being quick to promote prospects as soon as one is deemed ready, right? Having Mm -hmm. their on-field readiness be all that determines when they make the big league club versus surface time considerations. That's one way to, quote unquote, be generous, right? Be uh, ready to start the clock when you think a guy is ready rather than game him for an Mm -hmm. extra year. So there's that piece of it. I'm sure that, you know, there are salary considerations for front office folk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like one way an owner could be, quote unquote, generous would also be to concern themselves with like the financial well-being of all of the other people who aren't part of the organization the way we tend to think about it you know scouts and coaches and analysts and players and whatnot but also like you know maybe what you say is hey if you work at pnc park that's what their ballpark's called right pnc park Mm -hmm. you work at pnc park you're gonna make 25 dollars an hour right Mm -hmm. you could make sure that your concession and and sort of game day staff are paid well you could say you know we I don't know the extent of their unionization, um, but, you know, you could make sure that you come to the table to bargain in good faith if they're unionized, like stuff like that. What else could you do? You could artificially depress ticket prices, you know? Yeah, true. You Mm -hmm. You could say, we, as a thank you to our fans, especially after this long and at times very trying rebuilds yeah, like my
1: scrooge face <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: sorry about having done that you could <laughs> open the window and say hey you there boy go get a giant goose and also give out these tickets you know yep. and they'd be like that's weird don't what's a, this you know goose or is it a turkey it's a goose right it's a christmas goose
1: yeah a Christmas."
0: Goose. So, you could say we're capping ticket prices, we're capping concession prices at, at this number. We're going to have special, you know, family days where, and they might do some of this stuff already. I don't want to disparage them. We have so many reasons to like poke at the pirates. So, I'm not, I don't want to poke at them inaccurately. But, you know, we have family days where the kids get in free and everybody gets a hot dog or whatever, you know. I think that there are a lot of ways that you can deploy financial resources to make the the game day experience better and some of those are going to be personnel related making sure that you have really good players for folks to watch and some of them are going to be more sort of ancillary to the experience but still important like if you if you can take your family of 4 to the ballpark for the day and You know, the parents can enjoy, you know, perhaps an adult beverage of their choosing and the kids can have a soda and a hot dog for free and you can do all of that for like a reasonable sum like that enhances the fan experience. So I think there are a lot of ways. That if owners want to be non-scroogey, that they can do that. And I think the good news, if they view it as an opportunity, is that they can impact a lot of different people who have a vested interest in the team, either from an employment perspective or a fan perspective. So mm-hmm. go yep. forth, Bob. Yeah. Oh, and then and then he'd be, he, instead of being Scrooge, she'd be like, Bob Cratchit. Oh, perfect. Uh, Bob, uh, that's, that's a guy <laughs> named Bob in that story.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. God bless us, everyone.
0: Everyone,
1: (laughs) I guess you could uh, pay minor leaguers more too. I mean, yes, absolutely. Unionized now, but yeah, I think yeah, you you could
0: say, hey, that's not enough for me. I'm, I'm -hmm. gonna, I'm gonna, whatever you end up agreeing to in your CBA, we're gonna, we're gonna meet that and then exceed it by twenty percent or
1: whatever, you know hmm All right, I've got two more non-nutting related questions. Nathaniel says, as a Giants fan, I have been extremely concerned by the rumors that the Dodgers may be adopting a less active approach this offseason to go all in on Shohei Otani next year. I've concluded that the only way to prevent the Dodgers from signing Otani may be to allow a new type of contract. Let's call it a lottery contract. In this scenario, all 29 teams would decide that Otani signing with the Dodgers would be an absolute disaster and Mm. decide to pool their resources to outbid the Dodgers. For the sake of this argument, let's just say the contract is 10 years long. Once every team that wants to contribute money has done so, there will be a lottery to decide who gets Otani if he accepts the larger structure of the deal, of course, with the odds corresponding to the percentage of the contract each team gave. So teams like the Giants or Padres, who would very much like to sign him and want him to keep him off the Dodgers, decide to contribute $10 million a year. A team like the Angels, who want to keep him or any other team who wants a serious shot at signing him, might contribute this much as well. Small market teams like the Rays or Guardians would probably still contribute at least a million or two a year for a long shot at Otani. A couple of questions for Otani specifically. How many teams do you think would buy into this? How high do you think they could get the AAV to? How good would a player have to be and how much of a perceived advantage in free agency would one team have to have in order for other teams to buy into this? I don't think teams would even consider this with anyone but a generational talent like Otani. I still don't think even a lottery like this would convince Otani to take it over, let's say, a $45 million a year contract from one team simply because of the uncertainty behind it and the chance he could end up on the Pirates. Oh, poor Pirates. They ended up in this question, too. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about. In the end, I imagine the only contract signed by the system would be the Rays trying to save money on some 31-year-old reliever who no one has heard of. So every team chips in to the Otani fund, to keep Otani away from the Dodgers fund. And Otani has to decide, do I want to take presumably more money here? I I don't know how much more money it would be. So this is like the draft lottery basically where your contribution corresponds to your odds of getting him i guess so just the more you you offer the higher your percentage chance of being the lucky team that gets otani and in this scenario he agrees with this and is fine with uh, playing anywhere in exchange for <laughs> whatever amount of money he gets which uh seems unlikely yeah doesn't seem like something he would want to do doesn't seem like he has ever prioritized money especially certainly he didn't in coming to mlb and seems like if you could just kind of read between the lines of some of his comments that he would really like to be with a team that wins some baseball games and perhaps makes it possible for him to play in the postseason so i don't know that he would have any incentive to do this because uh, he's made a decent amount of money despite being massively underpaid relative to his production and he gets more endorsements than anyone if you count his kind of global endorsement value so he's uh. Set He doesn't have to do this. And I don't know what the advantage would be if, if money is not his top priority, because, yeah, he might just end up back on the Angels again, or he might end up somewhere even less competitive. Right. So this might just be impossible with him. There might be some players who would go for it because... Yeah they do just want to make the most money, which is also defensible. So if that were the case, and as we've discussed, like, hey, if you're rich enough, you can live anywhere and probably set things up to your liking and Mm. your life will be good in a lot of ways, regardless of, of where you sign and where you are. And it's not even that predictive more than a couple of years out, like which teams will actually be competitive at that point. So you could just sort of spin the wheel and say, I'll take the cash and hope I end up somewhere Grid. But uh, with him, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I think it's a non-starter for him, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, I don't know whether whether teams would want to keep him away from one other team enough to yeah. do this is the thing.
0: Well, and you get to a weird spot where you're like, what ends up being the gap between the amount that you have to put in to feel like you've really nailed The odds of getting him versus what it would just take to sign him. Right, yeah. You know, so there's that conundrum. And then with Otani specifically, like he, correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory of him, he had a, you know, there was a hard cap on how much teams could spend on him when he first came over from NPB because of his age. Yeah. But even within that cap system, I I don't think that the Angels had the most pool space that they could have potentially no. devoted to him. Right? Yeah, like they, he
1: they acquired more than they had in order to get closer. But I I they believe they did not have the most. They yeah. didn't
0: have the most, and so you know, like one of the teams that had more was say the Seattle Mariners, just to like you know push <laughs> on a bruise myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that he has demonstrated. That at least once you've cleared a certain bar, and to your point, even with the FTX debacle, like his earnings since then have been significantly larger than his base salary was in that year, uh, and then his signing bonus was. But he, you know, he has demonstrated that like having the agency to determine where he goes is important to him. Mm-hmm. So I think that he would say no. I think the PA would say absolutely not, and I think even the league would be like. Hmm, no, I don't care for this. It would be an interesting, like, um, like as a thought experiment, I find it very interesting. I would be really fascinated to see how teams approach it because, like, it has similarity to the draft lottery in some respects, but there is much more, they are, they are able to put their thumb on the scale with much more force, right, in this scenario than they would be In the draft lottery, where it's just like suck a lot, you know, like (laughs) yeah, good luck. I think that this is there's much more direct influence to be had over the outcome, and so I would be very curious to see like how teams approached it, although. As the last couple of weeks have shown. I mean, I know that there's been all this stuff about the Dodgers specifically with him, although I think that they, you know, are far from the only team, but like are the Dodgers the right team to be putting in this hypothetical or is it now the New York Mets?
1: <laughs> Could be. <Ben>? Yeah. <laughs> is
0: it the New York Mets? I mean, I know that have we heard from Otani lately on, about how important the West Coast thing is to him? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, like cuz I know that that was I think that that was reported in a direct from him kind of way, not in a just like, hey, you know how Japan and the West Coast of the United mm-hmm. States are closer to one another way? <laughs> you know, there was stuff said about Otani that had that f- had that flavor, you know. Uh, yeah,
1: this subseason we we've found that that's not always the case. Not always the uh, case. Multiple prominent Japanese players have signed with East Coast teams, so.
0: Right. But, you know, some of, some of this the speculation about what was important to Otani sometimes had the flavor of like, oh, I, I've... I see that these are closer to each other, and it's like yeah. I don't know if that that's a real thing. But I think that he he himself said like I would prefer to have a to be on a West Coast team. But I don't know what the state of that is and it, where it ranks in his sort of hierarchy of of signing needs. So maybe it isn't the Mets, but maybe it is. Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe he's gonna just be blown away by an offer. Who you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? It'll be oh boy oh oh. You, you think this off was fun? Oh. <laughs> You know, you're like Aaron Judge, it'll be like, who, you know, next year. (laughs) That's rude to Aaron Judge. But I think that the frenzy around where Otani will sign will reach a a fever pitch.
1: Yeah, it it does seem to me that the teams that would really be interested in this would be the teams that know they have no chance of actually being the high bidder for Otani. And so... Maybe they would pool their resources and say, well, we can't get him on our own, so we will all chip in something, and then we can make a collective offer, yeah. and each of us will at least have a chance of getting Otani as opposed to no chance. Right. And I guess it's possible that if enough teams contributed to the Otani fund, that that would be a bigger offer than he got from any other individual team, just like the collective bid from the bad or or less attractive or lower spending teams. So I I guess that would be like a cartel of Terrible teams could just get into league with each other and say we will each, you know, just have some sort of chance to get him if he were willing to entertain our offer. But everyone else would just be like, eh, I will just try to be the high bidder and get him all to myself and not have to take a chance. Although you're always taking a chance when you're trying to bid a free agent that they will just choose someone else, even if maybe you do spend the most money. All right. Last question comes from Ricky, who says, As the Braves put Jake Odorizzi into Game 3 of the NLDS, I was thinking to myself, they must want to give up a lot of runs. Then I wondered if that would be a good strategy. What if a team were to give up 30 to 40 runs in a game, with the idea being that the other players would become so exhausted from continuously running the bases that they wouldn't be able to rest up enough to be ready for the rest of the series? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how many runs would a team have to allow for the strategy to work <laughs> i'm guessing they would need to allow hits over home runs to force the players to run harder right would the other team stop trying after a while when they realize you aren't giving it your all is there a rule against not competing as hard to win a game so this is like essentially a, a rope-a-dope sort of strategy like a the Homer they fall Simpsons episode where he's just so so punchable and so resilient that his opponent in the ring can just get exhausted by punching him and then he can just kind of push them over because they will be staggering on their feet. So that's the question here. You just you bring in someone terrible like you put in a position player pitcher With the idea not of Completing the game but of just uh, Running up the score against you As high as possible so that The other team will just run out of steam And be unprepared To play you in future games
0: Um I mean I think that the commissioner would Intervene on this immediately because like that game Would go like 12 hours Can you imagine how long it would Take to score 40 runs I mean we've had games where it's like you know, there have been a lot of runs, but not, not, not that many, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's...
1: Yeah, it's... uh <laughs> There'd be the question, first of all, of, of could you do it? Because, yeah. well, I guess you could if you also instructed your, your fielders not to make plays. Because even if you put a position player pitcher or someone worse than a position player somehow in to pitch, you would still get outs eventually just because right. uh hitters would pop up or they would hit the ball hard right at someone. So you would also need to instruct your fielders not to try. And I guess what you could do if you wanted to take this to extremes, so be tough because there's only so much roster space, but if you were to (laughs) let's say like and you can't freely substitute players once you've set your postseason roster for a series. So if you wanted to, you could just have not Real players or or you could just like put, I guess, everyone who's on your 40 man who would not otherwise be on the active roster, like including minor leaguers who've not even been at the big league level. You just you put them on the roster knowing that you will just play them in game one and you'll have just uh, a bunch of not ringers like the opposite of ringers out there, like people who are just intentionally trying to lose and they're there to tire out the other team and you know that they're only going to play in game one, and then you tire out the other team successfully, and then you put your A lineup back in for the rest of the series, which will be fresh while the other team is exhausted from its exertions of of that first game. That's one way you could do it. Or you could do kind of half measures and just have your your bench players start, let's say, because the problem is like you do still have to have players out in the right. field. Right. So while this team is hitting and running around the bases, your, your you still guys be, are
0: getting tired too.
1: Yeah. I guess unless you instruct them to just stand still and not even make an effort, but then sure. the other team doesn't have to make an effort either, right. really. So they could just stroll around if they wanted to.
0: And, you know, there's a limit to how much you can sort of futz with the 40-man in service of this, right? It's, yeah. you know, you'd need guys with a lot of options, and even then you're limited in how many times you can option them in a year now. And so mm-hmm. I don't think this would be a sustainable strategy. Over the- <laughs> Shockingly enough, I don't think that this would work <laughs> over 162 games. Oh, man, what, what would this team do to, like, our understanding to like projections and stuff, right? Oh yeah. It would it screw would,
1: up, uh, would, run differential. Oh and just yeah. All kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of
0: things. Python Pat would be like, I tap out. I You <laughs> yep. sort out what kind of team this is on your own. I don't have time for this sort of math, right? Yeah. Yeah. It would be, I mean, can you imagine what it would do to, to ticket sales for the first game of a series? Cause like, once you know, this is what you're in for, right? You're not, are you going?
1: <laughs> no.
0: No. You're mm-hmm. like, I'm staying out of that one, right? I'm going to. I think that there's a lot about this that just wouldn't be practical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine like setting your rotation.
1: Yeah. Well, teams do a, a very slight version of this when they sure. just leave a pitcher out there to, to wear one, as yeah. they say, right? And you just you want to save the rest of your staff, and so you let a pitcher who maybe isn't that important or just doesn't have it that day, stay out there and take their lumps because you want to save the rest of your staff. So so that is the the very measured version of this. But yeah, the, lots of problems with this. I, I think the main problem really is that your guys have to be out there too, yep. or at least your defenders, and they do have to make some level of effort or the other team would immediately not make an effort. And if it became clear that you were not trying and not competing anymore, uh, probably this might fall under, well, umpires have some discretion, right, to just step in and say, you can't do that, right? right? Like they do. So they can rule, like, if, if they're unsafe conditions or that kind of thing, they can step in and say, like, you have to forfeit, like, this, we can't go on. So maybe there could be that sort of situation would happen or they would, like, Call up the commissioner and just be like, hey, they're obviously sandbagging here. They're not trying to win. And uh, there would just be consequences for that. So I don't think you could get away with it. Like you would not be allowed to get away with it. But also it would be hard to get away with in a way that would actually benefit you probably. I think that's right. Mm. Interesting thought, though. And mm-hmm. uh, Jake Odorizzi, I think he only gave up a couple runs in that game. So right. I don't think that that's <laughs> what Atlanta was doing in this case. He's not that bad. But yeah, like that is, I mean, position player pitching is also a version of this, essentially. It's just we're, we're not going to use a real pitcher. Like the game is out of hand and we're just going to save our staff here and put in a not real player and you can run up the score and that's fine. So yeah, like this happens to some extent, right. but taking it to this extreme, probably it would just stop working as well. It would be tough yeah. to implement. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we will end with the pass blast. This is episode 1943, and so this pass blast comes from 1943 and from Jacob Humrenki Sabers, director of editorial content and chair of the Black Sox scandal research committee. He writes 1943 All American Ump Show. In 1943, the All-American Girls Professional League began play during World War II with the backing of Chicago Cubs owner P.K. Wrigley. The league used modified softball rules at first before switching to overhand pitching and baseball rules in 1945. More than 600 of the most talented female athletes in the United States and Canada were able to make a living playing ball for the next dozen years in the All-American League. What the league didn't always have, however, was the most talented umpires. The Racing Journal-Times sports editor Keith Bream complained about the men in blue, and yes, they were all men, even in this women's league, in this column on August 13, 1943. Quote, there's been plenty of criticism of the All-American Girls Softball League umpires by the fans in attendance at the games. If umpire Charles Ullenberg never made a round call at the plate or on the bases, he would still be a poor umpire. He has an exalted opinion of the authority of his position, which is equaled only by his ability to tell any manager or player everything that said individual has told him for the entire season. Here's a typical example of the work of Ullenberg, who incidentally is likely to quote every word of this article to the ballplayers at some crucial point in a future game. In a game at Rockford, Sophie Curris of the Racing Bells thought she had tagged a Rockford runner sliding into second base. Ullenberg called the runner safe. Sophie protested, which she has a right to do. Later in the game, Curris made a poor throw to first base on an easy ground ball. You didn't look so good on that one, chirped Ullenberg. That seems inappropriate. When Curris turned to reply, Ullenberg majestically warned her, be careful or I'll throw you out of the game. What kind of major league umpiring is that? Piling up of grievances is bound to weigh on any man and subconsciously lead him to develop a mania for throwing players and managers out of games, as well as to call players out before the plays are completed." Jacob concludes, Ullenberg lasted only one season as an umpire in the All-American League, and two weeks later, he had to be escorted off the field in Rockford after making, quote-unquote, weird decisions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great.
1: Why
0: are you being so weird? It
1: was a weird decision in a crucial game between the Peaches and the first-place South Bend Blue Sox. Weird decisions. I need to know more about what the weird decisions are. Just like obviously wrong calls, or just like weirder than that. What does that mean? (laughs) I don't know. Near the end of the war, he was hired by the Carolina League. He umpired in the men's minor leagues for parts of four seasons and was released midway through the 1948 season. Later that year, he began refereeing a new professional soccer league based in St. Louis, where he continued to make enemies on and off the field. So I don't know whether his decisions were weird or not. Wow. <laughs> weird decisions.
0: Weird. What does that mean? <laughs> I want to know what it means. Me too. Yeah.
1: All right. Oh, I I meant to say by the way because the the Red Sox designated Jeter Downs for yeah. assignment, as I'm sure you saw. So the, yeah. he was sort of the centerpiece uh, prospect, at least, uh, below major league player acquired in the Mookie Betts trade. And so this led to people <laughs> reflecting on the Mookie Betts trade, which was not popular as it was. But the fact that it has not produced a star player and that it seeming will, will not produce uh, anything for the Red Sox yeah. in the form of Jeter Downs, that led to a condemnation of the trade and everyone kind of rehashing old grievances, which have never completely healed, understandably. I wonder, like, if you're the Red Sox, like... Do you hold on to it if you're Heim Bloom, too, whose reputation, like even though he was presumably instructed to make the Mookie Betts trade and had just taken that job when he made that trade, the fact that they've not gotten a superstar back and granted, like there was only one year of Mookie Betts left on the contract and he was not like an inexpensive player at that point. But still, you got to get someone better back if you're trading Mookie Betts, which you shouldn't do anyway. But I wonder whether you hold on to a player like that longer mm. just because you know that as soon as you release him and give up, essentially, then you're kind of conceding that yeah. the trade didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Yeah. Like obviously it didn't because Jeter Downs had not turned into the player that they right. were hoping he would turn into. But like as long as he's on the roster, like theoretically he could do he something could, yeah. someday, you know, and he was just in the majors very briefly in twenty twenty two. had 14 games and didn't hit it all and looked overmatched and really yeah. hasn't hit above double a i guess i just i wonder like as a face-saving move if you're like the gm whose reputation is tied to that trade yeah whether you wanted it to be or not whether you're just like you know what let's uh, let's give him another year <laughs> you know who knows uh, maybe something will click or at least like we won't have a news cycle about the fact that this player didn't pan out and what that says about me <laughs>
0: Yeah, I do wonder. I mean, I think that there is a difference when you are ma- when you make a trade with the idea that it's really going to improve your team and then it just doesn't pan out versus you have – like you don't trade – I'm not saying anything that contradicts you or that is particularly revelatory here, but like you don't trade – Mookie bets even with just a year of team control left without like the full buy in and at the instruction of ownership, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm sure that I don't know Heim Bloom, but like I would imagine like what people think of him matters to him to some degree because what people think of us matters to all of us to some degree. But the most important constituency from his perspective, which is the one that is going to say you get to continue to be the GM of the Boston Red Sox, is satisfied, right? Because mm-hmm. I think it's not controversial to assert that the monetary component of that deal seems to have been like the the motivation for it rather than, pure talent acquisition and Mm -hmm. so I don't know I think it it's different if you say are trading like James Shields for Fernando Tatis Jr than if you're trading Mookie Betts because ownership has said we can't get this guy extended at a deal we're comfortable with so move him while you can you know those Mm -hmm. are different things whereas you might hold on to the guy to be like no like he can do a thing (laughs) but maybe if you hold on to those players on your roster longer there's like more time for the like the comparison to mm. unfurl uh, like maybe it's better to cut bait early before you're like wow we're really in like year whatever of the Jeter Downs experience and he's still <laughs> doing this versus Mookie Betts right. right like maybe maybe there's something to identifying that the trade has been lost and just moving on as quickly as you can i don't know but i i think that like i said the the constituency that matters the most in terms of Bloom keeping his job is probably not, like, looking at that and going, I can't believe you did that. Like, they are Mm -hmm. like, yeah, we told you to do that, you know?
1: True. Right. And I guess uh, they needed a spot on the 40-man at that point, too. So that was, at some point, that maybe matters more than what people will say about you if you have to designate him for assignment. Right. Yeah, eh, maybe he'll uh, resurrect himself somewhere else. Maybe if he's uh, claimed, and we'll see. He'll he'll land somewhere. Perhaps he'll make some other team happy that did not trade Mookie Betts for him.
0: Which, like, I don't want to ascribe malice t- again mm-hmm. to a person I don't know. But like, if you're Hein Bloom, aren't you sitting there hoping this guy better be out of baseball in a year, man? Because <laughs> like, another thing. Yeah. right, like if he goes, to- <laughs> oh no, Ben, you know the worst possible outcome. Cheater Downs goes to the Dodgers, <laughs> resurrects his career, becomes yes. even a serviceable everyday player, and then yeah. you're just like, oh, I'm really in it now.
1: Yeah, it becomes uh, the the double play partner yeah. of Mickey Betts. Oh for my gosh, <laughs> next decade. Yeah, I
0: think in that case, even an ownership group that was like, please go do this, might be like, we might have to move on for you because now <laughs> we feel embarrassed. But yeah, recent history suggests that folks who have the resources to own sports franchises are perhaps less embarrassable than we would like them to be so
1: maybe not okay I have a few details about the weird decisions that Charles Ullenberg made so the Kenosha news reporter wrote that umpire Charles Ollenberg made some weird decisions he ejected Gladys Terry Davis the Rockford shortstop from the first game of a doubleheader and then sent her to the bench in the second game for protesting a called third strike Davis was on her way to becoming league batting champion. It was at that point that the bottle tossing started, <laughs> so the fans uh, had to be appealed to by the manager to stop tossing <laughs> bottles. On the following day, fans worked up ahead of steam over a number of umpire decisions until the ninth inning, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess uh, not not as much detail as I want here, yeah. but, but there were some, I, I guess it was just kind of... Uh, Not good decisions more so than than weird maybe. Maybe Ollenberg overreacted and had kind of a a quick hook perhaps. But we've answered emails about I think certainly managers and maybe umpires also just making like actually weird decisions or no decisions at all and what would happen if they just kind of – quiet quit or, or loudly quit in the middle of a game and what recourse there would be. So this was not that, I guess. It was just almost run-of-the-mill ump show sort of decisions as opposed to truly weird ones.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, ooh, I mean, those are, they're, they're kind of weird, though.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're kind of weird. Are they not, you know what I was hoping they would be rather than weird? I was hoping they'd be wacky.
1: Yeah, right.
0: And they weren't wacky.
1: They weren't wacky. mm all right, well, Meg was talking about how Andrew Benintendi is not quite the caliber of free agent that would cause her to pull someone away from holiday festivities to blog. But now she won't even have to think about that because he has signed. We can't seem to get through an episode even now without someone signing before we post it. The White Sox have signed Andrew Benintendi to a $75 million five-year contract. I guess Meg may have also mentioned something about the White Sox being cheap. Not on this particular deal. I think this easily exceeded expectations. The FanGraphs, Crowdsource, and Ben Clemens predictions for Benintendi were 56 million over four years, and the MLB Trade Rumors prediction was 54 million over four years. So he beat the AAV estimates by a little bit and got an extra year tacked on the end, which who hasn't this winter? So in the context of this offseason, it's not that surprising. We've seen so many overs that there definitely was a second or so of sticker shock when I saw Andrew Pennintendi and $75 million. You can see how it makes sense. The White Sox need an outfielder. They need some on-base percentage. Benintendi maybe projects as an average player or so per year over the life of this deal. I mean, he's usually not been much better than that. 2018 was kind of the outlier. Since then, he's been about average or a little worse or a little bit better. And then he got hurt at the end of last season. He's lost some speed. He just doesn't really fit the typical profile of a productive corner outfielder in that he's not going to give you a ton of power. But he's only 28, and I guess this is kind of the going rate for an average player. You figure $7.5 million per win-above-replacement or so at this point, double that, you get yourself Andrew Benintendi, at least if you think he'll be average throughout the life of the five-year contract. In other AL Central corner outfielder news, the Minnesota Twins signed Joey Gallo to a one-year $11 million contract. And if you had told me a year ago... That one year hence, Andrew Benintendi would get $75 million and Joey Gallo, who was at least twice as productive in 2021 by war, would get $11 million? That would have been a big shocker too. Maybe not quite as big as the Carlos Redon contract would have been two years ago, but still pretty big. Those two guys are linked in my mind because they play the same sort of position. They were both Yankees last year. The Yankees essentially decided to swap Gallo for Ben and Pendi, and they're completely different players. Strikeout rate-wise, batting average-wise, power-wise, etc. In the past, Gallo's been better, but his platform year was more of a pit year. The real implication here, though, is for the free agent contract over-unders draft because this basically gives me the victory. This was a costly one for Meg. She had the under on Benintendi at $54 million. So this is a $21 million subtraction from her total, which takes the gap between us now to about $41.5 million. And it also completes her board. So all of her picks have signed now. She ends up about 114 million in the right direction, but I'm at about 155, and I have the over on Taylor Rogers and the over on Brandon Drury left. So, unless those two essentially decide to play for free and sign for about a combined $6 million or so, I think I'm good. I think I can spike the ball at this point. So, thanks, Jerry Reinsdorf for all but handing me a victory here. Oh, and we couldn't even post this episode without the Red Sox having another newsworthy designation for assignment. I think Eric Hosmer's name came up earlier in this episode. Well, after we finished recording, the Red Sox DFA'd him as well. That reminds me, since we're talking about players getting DFA'd, we got an email from listener Brendan, who's also a Patreon supporter, who wrote, It is with the utmost regret that I write in with a how can you not be pedantic about baseball observation. Whenever a player is designated for assignment, it seems to be almost universally referred to as the player being DFA'd, but similar to the issue with saying RBIs. The D in DFA'd is coming from the first word, turning designate into designated, because saying a player was designate for assignment is obviously grammatically incorrect. But just like with RBI, there's no need to modify the acronym. Both designate for assignment and designated for assignment could be represented by DFA. I apologize for this message if it isn't something that you've noticed before. As with many of these, I think this may fall into the camp of who cares, because everyone knows what is meant. That is true, but now I notice it every time I say DFA'd and wonder, should I say dfa But no, I think I will continue to say DFA'd. Good pedantic question, though. Worth pedantically pointing out. I'll remind everyone that you can still sign up for the Effectively Wild Secret Santa through early next week. The sign-up form is on the show page. Again, open to everyone exchange small baseball-themed gifts with fellow Effectively Wild listeners, who might be me, and you can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up, pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Charlie Crossjell, David Specht, Kevin... Joseph, and Mitchell Dixon. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters, as well as monthly bonus episodes, one of which Meg and I will be recording this weekend. You can also get a signed book and an ad-free Fangraphs membership and discounts on merch and even an appearance on an email show if you're a real high roller. Check out the offerings, patreon.com slash Wild. You can also message us through the Patreon site if you are a Patreon supporter. If you are not, you can email us at podcast@fangraphs.com you can also join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and spotify and other podcast platforms we really do appreciate your positive ratings and reviews you can follow effectively wild on twitter at ewpod and you can find the effectively wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild thanks to dylan higgins for his editing and production assistance we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week